When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. Hello, welcome to the TFO Football Podcast. There is no Joe again. Joe is on holiday, somewhere romantic in the countryside with his partner, having a nice time. There's also no JJ, so we've worked JJ pretty hard in his first few weeks at TFO. So we gave him the weekend off, no football for him. But we do have Alex. Hello, Alex. Hello, sorry about that. No, no. <laughs> Excellent start to the pod. What did we talk about today? So we uh, we spent quite a long time on, on the FA Cup final, particularly on Yuri Tillemans and Kasper Schmeichel. We went very niche. We really took advantage of the fact that uh, that, that Joe isn't here. We went pretty self-indulgent this week. Uh, we talked about Clermont Foot's promotion from Ligue 1, had a little bit of time on Lille, talked about Besiktas winning the Turkish Championship. And we also did some full-scale Dusan Vlavic propaganda. Uh, and we also stressed how smart we are because he did appear a long, long time ago in a Sensible Transfers video, didn't he, Alex? Uh, yes, yes, he did. I, I found him and I praised him. And look, two years later, I'm right. Yeah, you, you found him. We have not found the video yet, so we're going to hunt through the archives just to prove how smart Alex is. Um, if you want to get smarter, oh, that's a pretty good segue. If you want to get smarter, why not subscribe to The Athletic? At the moment, you can get 30 days free uh, and then £4.99 a month thereafter. All you have to do to take advantage of that is go to theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. That's theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. Okay, let's get on with it. Alex, cup final. You actually enjoyed this. You actually enjoyed a game of football. Expand <laughs> on why, please. Yeah, it happens occasionally. Um, I I was impressed with a number of, of individual performances. Um, obviously, Yuri Tielemans, who's somebody that we've we've banged on about on this podcast before as being a genuinely fine midfielder. But also, I thought uh, Wesley Fofana stood out. A number of crucial blocks, very good in the air. Also, this ability to carry the ball forwards and, and break the first line of the Chelsea press was really important. Rhys James played as a as a right-sided centre-back, I think probably to compensate for Jamie Vardy's pace in that left-hand Leicester channel, but that meant he was playing in a, in a role he's unused to, and I thought he did really well there as well. So yeah, it was just a, it was just a good back and forth. There was some, you know, some genuine skill and then capped off by one of the really good FA Cup final goals. Really good FA Cup final goal, really good FA Cup final goal noise in the sense of the noise it made when it hit the net. I've missed that so much. Like you get the little 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 clink of the ball hitting the net, you get the fans. It's just uh if you if you if you hunt down a, a particular angle, kind of the um behind Tiedemann's angle, there's a, a woman at about I suppose, 10, 11 o'clock in the shot. Just watch her face as it goes in. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. It's a brilliant expression. It's the kind of thing that we've all missed. Um, Tillemans is funny because I he was fantastic on Saturday. But to me, he's one of those players that exists in this sweet spot whereby people kind of notice him when he plays really well. And then he can go quiet for a few weeks and nobody really talks about him. And also nobody talks about their quietness. Disgust. Yeah, I su- uh, well, I think... The thing with Tielemans is that he, generally speaking, is not a goal-scoring or a creating midfielder in effect. That's that's his main function. His main function is to provide the ball with progressive passes to the other people that do stuff. Obviously, for a lot of the season, that's been James Madison, who's been pulling the strings ahead of that that pivot. Tielemans is more like um, the, the player who supplies the player who supplies the assist. 
Um, that's not to say he's not weighed in with some goals. And actually, if you look back at um, the, the goals he scored this season, they are quite often, if not exactly the same as the cup final goal, there is a similarity in that he's he's quite... The, the, the one against Arsenal is a bit different because he carries it from the right channel inside. But by and large, he, he picks up space. He pushes forwards as the, the opposition defensive line are retreating and then receives a, a, a ball um, and shoots. And it's a particularly good one against Newcastle where he does that. But he's not really roaming forwards all of the time with that in mind. And that's because Leicester have players ahead of him who are able to do that. So... I think it's one of those funny things about assessing midfielders is that we have this fixation with goals and assists as two of the most measurable metrics. And that's why sometimes people will criticise Thiago, for example, at Liverpool, because he's not he's not supplying those, but what he is doing is keeping everything else ticking over. And as we said in either the last podcast or the one before this, Leicester have this fantastically balanced midfield. So all of them do various bits and pieces, but the one who kind of links, and Didi wins the ball, Tielemans gets it forward, Madison supplies the final pass. That That's how that midfield is supposed to function. And that can allow players to slip past without really being noticed because they're not doing the things that generate fantasy football points, basically. Let's put it this way. I feel like Tenemans is an example of a, a player that gets missold by the way we frame hype. So like, I think it's going back a few years now, but he first became noticeable to a lot of people because every now and again, one of his goals from Anderlecht would sneak onto Twitter. You know, it would, and it would always be a kind of a, a raking long ranger. Mm. Uh, and that's kind of, that became the emblem of his ability. And that's why he's a good player. And so when he, when he comes into the English game, when he comes into, well, first of all, League One, League R, um, that's what you expect him to be. You think, right, well, this is this guy that, you know, 10 times a season, he is going to hit the top corner from 30 yards. And if he's not doing that well, then, you know, he's not fulfilling his potential. It's a little bit of a commentary, actually, on that kind of goal, skills and flicks. Um, oh, completely. Culture. Yeah, it, it's it's, that, it's YouTube it? football. Yes. Yeah. And, exactly. <laughs> and I, I say that as a representative of a football YouTube channel. Um, yeah. It, if you look at his metrics this season, he is, you know, uh, going off what FB Ref do with their percentiles. He's in the top 65% for non-penalty goals, non-penalty XG. He's a little bit higher for shots. He's a little bit higher for assists. But where he really, really stands out, where there's only maybe 10, 12% of midfielders in Europe's top five leagues that are better, are for shot-creating actions and progressive passes. So shot-creating actions are one of the two things that then lead to a shot. So it might be a dribble, it might be a pass, and it's it's the two preceding actions. And this is why I say he's the guy who passes to the guy who passes to the shooter. Progressive passes are passes that you know, advance the ball a particular distance. This, these metrics vary from provider to provider, but basically a progressive pass is a pass that cuts the opposition open in some sort of way. And I think that's the measure of him. And that's why I keep going on about it. But the balance of this Leicester midfield is particularly well geared, that each of them are particularly good at doing a certain thing that all kind of links together. And because Tielemans isn't doing the stuff that gets on a highlight reel necessarily. And, you know, yeah. his goals are... He, he has a knack of scoring incredibly good goals, which is not a function of him looking for worldies, but is a function of the way that he pushes up when Leicester in a particular phase of attack, when the attack is dynamic, when the ball's out wide, there's the opportunity for a cut pass. He's the one who is arriving at the edge of the box to be able to strike it, you know, first or second time, and score a really good-looking goal. But he doesn't do it that often, because that's not his job. And and I do think that we can sometimes, you know, in, in a way, the fact that he scored this incredible goal in, in a showpiece game for English football, which has fans back for the first time in ages, slightly does a disservice to how people will judge him, because in the next Premier League season, when he only scores, like, five yeah. goals... 
people will look at him and go, oh, well, why is he not pinging them in from 30 yards every game? And it's like, <laughs> this is the same problem again, isn't to. it? Yeah, if, exactly. If this, is, if this is your introduction to Yuri Tillemans, then it's kind of like what happens if, I don't know, uh, a football account on Twitter starts providing some kind of social commentary and attracts a whole lot of new followers. And then all of a sudden it reverts back to like opinions about Burnley Fulham on a Saturday. It's that. And it's kind of, well, a good form of that. Burnley Fulham makes it sound like Euro Tillemans is uh, normal is a bit dull, which, which it isn't. Um, <laughs> before we move on from him, I do want to talk about his career because I've always found it a little bit strange. You had the first phase, which was great expectation and this guy's heading for the top of the game, Ballon d'Or, European Cup, etc., etc. Then he went to Monaco and I still don't really know. I don't know enough about French football really to understand why it didn't work there. But when it became clear that he was available, he still had his reputation in this country and yet quite a few teams passed on him and i imagine that um you know if he had an agent worth his salt then at the point at which he was about to leave monaco then quite a few other sort of european heavyweights would have been aware of his availability and yet his best option and i i mean this with no disrespect but his best option was a loan to leicester city which felt like i remember without any justification thinking there's a red flag somewhere there's there's something about him that people don't like that that um, technical directors and sporting directors are looking at and thinking, no, not for £40 million. And now, a couple of years later, um, I remember actually, I think I saw his debut for Leicester. Uh, they played Spurs at Wembley. And I was reporting on that game and um, Leicester got beaten, but um, Tiamans was the best player on the pitch. And ironically, um, Spurs were one of the teams that passed on him. Like They had an option to, or they, they had a they were part of a negotiation and someone within the organization said, no, I, I still don't see what it is or what it, what it would be that someone would say, yeah, no, not for me. I think it's, it's tricky. I mean, he, the season before he moved to Monaco, he was explosive and, and got yeah. 13 goals and 13 assists um, in the uh, Belgian top tier. And then he went to Monaco and he got pretty decent minutes. He was like 15, 1600 minutes in each of those two seasons, but really everything dried up. He got five goals in the second season. But I think sometimes when a young player is transcendent within a division that people have quite serious caveats around, you know, how well that will then translate into a better division, and Belgium is one of those. It's like a really, really good goal scorer in Holland. It's the same sort of thing. To then go to Monaco, Alves conundrum, right? Exactly, and sometimes it'll pay off, right? But but a lot of times it doesn't, and I think there's always a caveat around age. I think Monaco were in and out of financial and ownership troubles, and there was some managerial stuff going on, so it wasn't necessarily the most comfortable environment. But I think it was quite a smart move for him because it would have perhaps been quite easy for him to to surf the wave of that Anderlecht season at that point and go to a bigger team where he would have just been passed over or would have got minutes off the bench and it it would have kind of delayed his development to a degree. I guess two quiet seasons at Monaco where people have those concerns about Belgium would have had a lot of people going, well, yeah, this is kind of what we thought. Like he looked amazing around relatively crap players He's now gone to a more serious league and he's just not showing anything. Part of a bit and of a that sort of money because that's well, Monaco yeah. were in their, you know, in their sort of identity crisis stage when he was there. And it was a sort of, I, I felt well, like they went that from second really... to 17th exactly, over those two exactly. seasons. Yeah, that was the, I think at the beginning of that season, Jardim was sacked. Yeah. And then, you know, before he got reinstated and then, then sacked again, obviously. But, they were chaotic, and so it felt like there was no mitigating circumstances for him, or that he wasn't afforded the mitigating circumstances that he was due. Yeah, but but the, again, you know, this is further testament to to Leicester's canniness in the transfer market. You know, Leicester are very very good at not only selling players for profit, but but picking up players who are less expensive than they ought to be, maybe taking a bit of a chance on people, bringing people through that you haven't necessarily heard of. And I think for Leicester, Tielemans's fallow period, those two seasons at Monaco, was probably an invitation to pick up somebody where they thought, you know, yes, okay, it's relatively expensive still, 
but there's a lot of potential there. And if you're a Leicester, then you are leaning heavily on on data and on scouting and and potentially again you you go back to what we were saying beforehand where again off the back of a double digit season in goals and assists for a team if you're not then producing those two things it is possible that your output otherwise is being neglected uh, and Leicester were not the sort of team even then to go, oh, well, he's not scoring or assisting, therefore he must be rubbish. You know, that they, they would have been looking at other metrics to go, no, 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 there's there's absolutely something here. He's just not quite doing what everybody thinks he's best at. So we're going to move on from Leicester, but not before we give a little bit of a mention to Kasper Schmeichel. You know what's always struck me about him is, is not like agility or actually how loud he is on the pitch which if you during the I, I one of the only empty stadium game i covered was um leicester's game against spurs before christmas and goodness he's loud he's the loudest goalkeeper in the league i think um <laughs> he's also um he's got the strongest wrists in the league for me like he reminds me of uh of jacks from mortal Kombat. like he's got those 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 metal arms like if you watch him make saves like lotus body or um top corner it's amazing how many times um, the ball comes off him, rebounds off him at a right angle. Now, we've talked about his wrists on this pod before, and I'm trying to remember we if are it quite was a game. Pod. I, mean, we, we, I think yeah. it was against Manchester City, and the shot came, it was either a shot or a header, but it came back across him from his left-hand side. And again, a, a fraction of a second in which to react. And it was just the sheer strength of his hand and his wrist that, There's no that gift stopped to it, is there? what absolutely no, like... should have been a goal. You know that cliche about the strikers yeah. peeling away to celebrate before. And, yeah, and he, yeah, yeah. I think Schmeichel has this ability because of that strength to, to save shots, particularly from close in, that he has absolutely no right to. And he's, you know, he, again, like I hate the expression, but he is underrated as a goalkeeper because there are now ways of judging goalkeepers. And Schmeichel's adapted his his passing game and he's adapted very successfully. In fact, he's gone from from being a very, very long ball punty kind of goalkeeper under uh, under Ranieri and evolved into a much better distributor under Brendan Rodgers. But the way we look at goalkeepers a lot of the time is 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 based on the occasional spectacular save or like an Edison or an Allison with really good distribution and and the sort of goalkeepers who just consistently do exactly the fundamentals really, really well, organize their defense, provide an incredibly uh, firm basis for everything else that the team does. Like you say, communication. Communication is not something we ever talk about when we assess goalkeepers. But it's one of the single most important aspects of goalkeeping. I think there's a reason for that, though. I think communication is very difficult for people to judge. Like, even if you're in a stadium under normal conditions, hearing the communication and oh, totally. Like, I'm not, value... I'm not saying it doesn't make sense why we don't judge yeah. it. I mean, you, you know, you go on FB Ref, there isn't like an XC communication. Metric. You know, you know, sure. Defenders um, shouted at per game, but <laughs> exactly, De- defenders balled out per ninety. But at the same time, you can see if you're watching a defence closely, and defence is arguably way harder to to analyse and assess than attack is, and, and particularly centre-backs are an absolute nightmare to scout. But you can see when a defence is playing behind a goalkeeper that has their confidence and who tells them what to do and where to stand, and there's just a cohesion that you get from that that, that you can sometimes see as lacking in in more callow goalkeepers or goalkeepers who are having a bad run of form and, and don't have the confidence to express themselves. I've got a couple of other theories about why he's um, underrated. And the first one, first one obviously is his dad. Like, his dad was such a good player, but also such a such an integral part of that particular era, the era in which he played and the Man United team in which he, he kind of um, he made his name, uh, also won a European Cup and a lot of Premier League titles, so that 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 helps. The other one is that, and I think this doesn't just apply to goalkeepers, but any player. Like the first time we saw Casper Schmeichel was at Manchester City, and then his career didn't start as it was supposed to. It had a little bit of a he needed to drop down for a few years. He dropped into the football league, played for um, among others Leeds United for a little bit, and came up with Leicester City, obviously. 
when that happens to a player, it almost becomes a sort of a black mark against their reputation. Because the first time you see him, it's a, oh, goodness, this is Peter Schmeichel's son. He must be brilliant. And you see him and he's young. He's um, He was slender when he made his Premier League debut. He was very young. And um, he just didn't look sort of not up to it, but he just didn't look ready for it. And so all of that hype gets burst. And then he floats away back into the first time of the Football League, comes back and he's sort of in this weird little ordinary orbit as a player because, ah, oh, well, he's, you know, he's not quite what we expected him to be. And it feels as if over the years since he has put together a really, really impressive resume and yet people don't quite pay enough attention. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's very reasonable. I watched uh, Palace Villa, which we may or may not talk you about later. You warned me um, off Palace Villa as well. Like I was, I was about to I know, turn over and I you know. said no, because it will be shit if you do. <laughs> Three, two. Yeah, uh, that was, that was erroneous on my part. Um, but it was, uh, so Jack Butlin was playing in, in goal for Palace. And uh, and again, yeah. this, this is somebody who, and I think you sometimes get this with goalkeepers. It's it's either what you're describing, or it's they they come onto the scene as a, an eighteen or a nineteen year old. They make an exceptional impression with a couple of good performances, usually in the lower leagues, and people are like, "Wow, this guy's really great." Yeah. And then five, six, seven years down the line, they're you know they're the third choice for a Premier League side, or they're still pottering around the mid-reaches of the championship. Goalkeeping, I think, is such a difficult thing to assess. And it's so easy for certain elements to be overstated or certain performances to be overstated or indeed understated. You know, one bad game and all of a sudden that person's a calamity. And It's a trauma. And this, is, it's... this is one of my yeah, favourite and... topics is the trauma that afflicts English goalkeepers, Alex, because it's it's a... It's such a weird pattern, and there are so many players that it has um, has well, so many careers really that it that it's stolen. So Butland for me, Butland never really has never really been the same since he he broke his ankle against Germany when he conceded mm-hmm. that. Um, I think it's a Tony Kroos goal. I think it's been uh, quite a long time. But you can add into this list uh, Scott Carson, um, Rob Green, of course, Paul Robinson. Probably never really recovered from what happened to him in Croatia. Uh, David James, slightly different case. David Seaman's reputation was terminally damaged, probably by Ronaldinho in the World Cup. He remained a good goalkeeper, but he kind of he was seen as mm. vulnerable in a way that you know you you I, I don't know. It's it's kind of part perception from the fans, but it becomes a kind of it becomes a player's reality over time. Eventually, they kind of conform to what they're supposed to be, which is this guy that's going to drop this terrible bollock at some point, and it's yeah. going to cost you the game and and. English goalkeepers have had a terrible time with this. And Butland, honestly, you could do a podcast on what's happened to Jack Butland because I, I think there were times at Stoke in the championship where it was difficult to watch what had happened to his confidence. Really difficult to watch, just uncomfortable. It's a very, yeah. I mean, the the, the mental aspect of goalkeeping is is fascinating. Um, and I, I suppose as well, you, you, you have instances like Joe Hart where when Joe Hart was good... He was phenomenally good, yeah. particularly yeah. as a as a reflex shot stopper. And yet aspects of the game, particularly at the club that he was at, moved on. And then all of a sudden, despite the fact that, you know, fundamentally in terms of the, the main job of a goalkeeper being preventing goals, he was still very, very good. He's just drifted off now. I mean, I, I actually struggle to remember where Joe... He, popped up at Spurs didn't he no he's he's still at Spurs he's still um, at Spurs yeah it's really interesting because if you said to a Spurs fan five years ago you can have Joe Hart as your your backup goalkeeper maybe even as recently as three years ago they're like okay that's that's you know that's an upgrade from Michelle Vorm and uh, Paolo Gazzaniga and Mm. yet he is broken and he's not that old uh, Joe Hart like he He's just lost all of the things, all the things you talked about, like the shot stopping. I, I always remember a um, a save he made from Stephen Naismith at Goodison Park in um, City's second title win. It's a brilliant save and City probably don't win the title without him making it. And it was kind of, that's what Joe Hart does, stands up big and big moments. And then Euro 2016 happened, the Guardiola thing happened and, you know, everyone kind of, well, Guardiola must be right because he's Guardiola. Um, and he's been proven right because Manchester City are a better side without Joe Hart and without that style of goalkeeping. But Hart went off to Torino, terrible time there. 
West Ham, terrible time. Burnley, nothing time. Spurs, it's just such a it's such a difficult thing to explain. And it's really unfair because it, it, it detracts from what's been a brilliant career. Like, how many England caps this guy won? This guy's won the, you know, two Premier League titles, FA Cup, a couple of League Cups, you know. Like, he's, he's done amazing things in the game, and yet he's, he's, become, he's become, like, the latest in that kind of succession of punchlines um, yeah. that, that you sort of uh, afflicts English goalkeeping. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Um, what strikes me, Alex, is that Joe's not here, and we haven't been nearly niche enough so far. Like we haven't okay. kind of taken advantage of this latitude that we've been afforded. So we're going to uh, Ligue 1 in France. Yes, we and are. we're going to talk about Clermont Foot, who have been promoted to Ligue 1 for the first time in their existence. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And had kind of passed me by, I'll be honest. But I, I took advantage of this fact to, to go and watch how they play a little bit and particularly to look at Mohamed Bayo, who is the uh, leading goal scorer uh, in Ligue 2 with 22 goals. And he's a hell of a player. <laughs> he's he's great. He's, um, he's only 22 years old. He's come through the Clermont uh, Academy, which is another of these excellent academies in France. He's six foot two, rapid, and he really, really suits the way that Clermont play, which is really quite direct. They've got a lot of good passers and, and dynamic runners, particularly in that, that kind of attacking line behind the striker. What's interesting about Bayou is that he can, occasionally he drops off to link up play, but he's just brilliant at being in the right place at the right time, breaking forwards into the box, timing his run to get on the end of a, of a cutback or an angled cross. The left back, Vital and Simba, he overlaps quite a lot and has provided a lot from the left-hand side. That's and a great just, name for a defender, by the way. Vital, Vital and Simba, isn't it? He's got yeah, four assists this season. Um, and, and ahead of him, they've got a guy um, called Jim Alavina, um, who is the the kind of left inside forward who plays drifting across into the 10 slot. He creates quite a lot. On the right-hand side, you have more of an orthodox winger. They're just a good team to watch. But Bayou is the sort of player who, given one season in Ligue 1, where he manages to maintain something like the scoring record that he's got, and he'll be off somewhere better. It's interesting. I think I'm only really aware of Clermont-Foot, or originally became aware of them, because of what happened a few years ago when they, um, the Helena Costa fiasco, when they became, I, I think I'm right in saying, the first second tier club in Europe to appoint a woman as head coach. And it was this amazingly progressive moment, happened at the end of a season, and everyone was like, this is cool, this is, you know, this is, this is, this is a kind of new era for the game. And I don't think she ever took charge of a uh, even a, a friendly game because she fell out with the sporting director who wouldn't apparently, according to her account of, of events, wouldn't reply to emails, couldn't contact the chairman. And it, it kind of went full circle, if you remember. It was sort of this, oh, they're, they're kind of this symbol of, of good. And then they became the exact opposite. What's been forgotten is they then appointed Kareem Dyack um, for three years and she had a um, very um, serviceable period in charge of the team. But it's kind of... That's the only anecdote that I could connect with them. I don't think I'd ever heard of them before then. And then all of a sudden they popped up in um, Ligue 2. And actually the first time we talked about them, you um, started talking about your Socho save in Football Manager, which is the yes. kind of thing, again, Joe would not allow you to talk about, but I <laughs> am giving you the floor. Alex, yes. tell us all about it. <laughs> so Socho, I, I, God knows how I came across them. I have absolutely no idea. Um, but the the 1999... 
um, 2000 Sosho squad had a number of players that would, in the game, went on to be really, really good. So people like um, Benoit Pedretti, pierre Alain Frau, Kamal Meriem. They also had Omar Daff, who went on to, I think, he, he was recently the manager of Le Havre. He may still be. No, I think he was replaced, actually. But it was just, it was the first save that I kind of really got in. I, I played football manager sporadically prior to that. In fact, it was probably championship manager not long before then. But Sosho was the first one where I kind of really got into it and played like, I don't know, maybe five or six seasons in that, that year of school. Started buying other players like Olivier Monterubio from, from Nantes. Um, Mikel Landry was the goalkeeper who I acquired the next season. And it just, yeah, it was fun. I've always had a kind of affection for French football based around football manager <laughs> for reasons that I cannot explain. Uh, I've never even been to see a game of French football live. But yeah, it was that that kicked it all off. And I have a really nice Sosho top that I wear when I go running. Is it now 19 years old or did you acquire it recently? No, I acquired it quite recently, actually. I got it off... Okay. Um, uh, of a, a famous website that people will be aware of and it's kind of like a it's like a training top it's almost like a tracksuit thing ideal for jogging in when it's slightly colder let's move up a division um because the last game we watched this weekend was Lille Sanetien and I was a bit disappointed well I, I I'm disappointed in the sense that like you said on Saturday I've become a little bit of an anti-fan so I don't really want things to happen in football. I want certain teams not to achieve things. So that that's my mm. place in the game now. And I'm I'm very much a kind of a team Lille because I'd love to see them get over the line. Um, I think they've got a great story. Uh, they kind of froze against San Etienne, I felt, and you felt. Yeah, very much so. It was interesting because obviously we released uh, the, the Lille tactics video in our new format or our improved Kind of your format. fault then. Uh, <laughs> the Tifo curse. People have observed that this is a thing, and you could see from. And obviously, in order to to do that video, I watched a lot of Lille playing. And in this game, it was like they were trying to do all of the things that they have done successfully all season. They were just half a beat slow all of the time. There was a, a lack of. I don't know if it's a lack of urgency or a lack of confidence. And it's really, really hard. I mean, it's a decade since they won the title. That squad is quite young. It's relatively inexperienced. There's not people in it that you look at and go, I mean, you know, the, the old heads, people like Ilmaz and Font. Um, yes, Ilmaz has won stuff in Turkey, but, but Font, you know, long and distinguished career, but not exactly the kind of person who goes, I know what it's like. To not win the very top, top league. of the game. That's exactly, like he's had a good career, but not a you know a decorated career. Indeed, so and and I think I think you sometimes need to have that. You know, it's sometimes about bringing a player in who's who's won stuff before, or it's having a manager who's won stuff before, and, and Galtier hasn't either. I don't think maybe a Coupe de France with Saint. He won a Coupe de France with Saint Etienne. Yeah, um, and also actually Saint Etienne's. Uh, Saint-Étienne's right back tonight was Debussy, who was playing for Lille when they last won the title. <laughs> so, yeah, so there yeah. was there was some narrative hashtag narrative there. But yeah, you, that that's you know they they looked they looked a little short of confidence, definitely short of kind of slickness. Saint-Étienne played a very, I mean, they are a very Claude Puel team. They're organised. They're niggly. They keep a good structure. They don't really try and expand the game too much. Uh, most of what they did was through Wabi Kazri carrying very, the ball. They were very, very boring on Sunday night. They were they're just... They, and, and have been very, very boring. I mean, it's a funny thing. So Lille next play Angers. And if they win, then they are fine because they have a, a, yeah. a points grace against PSG. But Angers and Saint-Étienne are, I think, 11th and 12th pretty much the same number of goals conceded both play a very similar kind of way and and are exactly the sort of teams that you don't want to watch if you want to get a sense of how french football can be exciting and enjoyable angers and saint-etienne are not exciting and enjoyable they are frustrating and defensive and tedious 
And, and right. so that makes it a really hard fixture for Lille, uh, both of those fixtures, because they know that they're playing somebody who just wants to give them nothing. In the defence, I thought they should have had a penalty for that Jonathan David incident, where he got kind of kicked through the back Agreed. of his heels. Yeah. Um, there was one pretty flagrant dive um, from Shellick. Uh, Ronaldo. Um, yeah, that uh, was embarrassing. Was, um, that was not a, not a good look. But they would have won the game if not for Saniatin's goalkeeper. Tell me about him, because his save from Yaziki, I think. Who was yes, it? Yes, from kick? the free kick. Yeah, yeah, it was from absolutely. the free kick. That was an absolutely brilliant save, and he has only just arrived into the Saniatin first team. Okay, so Etienne Green is, um, he was born in Colchester. His dad is English, his mum is French, and he moved over to France, I think, when he was about 12 and joined the Saint-Étienne youth side after a couple of years playing for somebody else. He's been on the fringes of the first team. I think he's made five or six appearances this season. But he was he was exactly what you want from a goalkeeper. I mean, in terms of, yes, the save off the free kick, because this was a game that basically only got good with about five minutes yeah. to go. Um, got very frantic, yeah. Yeah, and that, that was a fantastic save because it came through a pile of bodies and he reacted. He, he could only react late to it, um, but did so well. But prior to that, I'd been really impressed with, like there was a long shot that kind of bobbled in towards him and his technical positioning was excellent. He adjusted his body down low. There was a good bridge behind it, made sure that there was no way it would squirm loose. He came, claimed a couple of balls well. You know, he, like, you know what? The but, one where he, he, he took that high ball under pressure from Yilmaz, because Yilmaz is like a, he's like a character in the Iliad, isn't he? I, <laughs> he's pretty fierce. And if you're a young goalkeeper yeah. and... You're off the ground and you've got the ground shaking underneath you because you're mad. That's right. To... That was like his the the left side of his six yard box, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. Like, you that. Came, exactly. You came, yeah, you know that's the sort of thing where if a goalkeeper stays on his line and Ilmaz maybe gets a header in, but but probably more dangerously gets a flick back, then the goalkeeper's been dragged all the way to the left hand side to cover that near post and is a bit tangled up. And then the rest of the goal is open with players there. You can get deflections, all that kind of stuff. So it's exactly the kind of situation where you want your goalkeeper to be dominant. And he's six foot four, yes. But again, you know, he's he's slightly slight at this point, I would say. Yeah, exactly. He hasn't um, filled out properly, I don't think. Yeah. No, um, but but there was there was no reticence from him uh, in, in doing that. The fundamentals looked really strong. And yeah, I think it's it's great to see a a, a young English goalkeeper who's you know, I mean English by nationality, like he's in France for <laughs> not because he screwed up a career over here yet, but you don't get English young English goalkeepers abroad very often. Um, no, I, I was thinking that. someone to keep an eye on. Yeah, no, definitely he's um, he's interesting. I hadn't seen him play before, but um, super super impressed. Um, propaganda time. Um, let us rally around a common cause. And talk about Dusan Vlavic because yes, he's a player we both really like and rather smugly have liked for a really long time. So much so that you actually included him in a sensible transfer from the past. Did you um? Did you find out which one? No, I didn't. <laughs> so we can't point to our own smugness. Okay, well that, that's disappointing. But for people who don't know, I I, I watched Napoli against Fiorentina mainly um because uh, of Napoli. I wanted to overcome a kind of um. I'm doing some anti-fanning around Juventus's uh, end of season attempt to qualify for the Champions League. But this season, and, and it's worth remembering for context, Fiorentina are really bad this year. They're just, they're, they're, I think they're in 14th at the moment. To capture just how important uh, Vlaovic has been to Fiorentina, he scored 21 goals in Serie A this season, and none of their other players have scored more than five. So he's been absolutely vital. And he's great. It feels like in a world without Erling Haaland, or you know where the kind of the 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 centre forward ideal has become more of a I suppose a Kylian Mbappe. You can kind of miss how great Vlahovic is. If he was if he if he played in a different era, if this was still a land of like Christian Vieri's, then you'd say that's the guy, and I'm going to pay all the money in the world I I have for him. Um, what do you like about him? Apart from all I, of those I, goals. Yeah, <laughs> apart from all of those goals. Um, <laughs> I suppose what I like about him is kind of what you've just described, that that he I mean, yes, he's he's quickish, yeah. but there is a there is a presence there. There's a physicality to the way he plays. I remember 
first looking at him on the basis of his expected goals per 90 off the bench <laughs> in like five performances and it was just wildly high and I was thinking who, who was he still person? in Serbia then no yeah, no this was that he had moved to Italy but he was okay. very much knocking around the fringes and uh there's an intensity to what he does like he he was pressing the ball he was trying to win it back it quite often wasn't working out but you could tell that this was somebody who wanted to be a part of the game and that that's maybe a slightly weird thing to say but Sometimes with strikers, they can they can kind of drift in and out a little bit, and they can appear quite peripheral. And sometimes it's because they're waiting for a you know. A break hey, but particularly or in teams but... like that, which are a bit disconnected, in like if you're in yeah, the side, which, I think I think that's right. Like, yeah, and you, but what you want is is a, a bit of aggression. You want somebody who is prepared to chase down lost causes, who is always looking to burst past the defender and maybe leave a little bit of something on them as they do that. Um, he's a very good finisher as well yeah. by the way but i think it's that and that it's a sort of slight fa cup throwback here but there's he's not a jamie vardy player don't get me wrong like stylistically they're not that similar but there is something about the way that vardy plays with with intensity that is not just about trying to get on the end of through balls but is uh, is there in everything he does it's uh, an aggression and, I think it's an aggression it's a concentration as well it's a focus like a single-mindedness that does manifest itself as aggression and I like that in a striker I don't want strikers who are you know all kind of clever balletic touches um that's that's... no I want to try hard I want I want an absolute pain I want someone that if I was playing against as a centre-back I would just think oh will you leave me alone like just I I want that and in Italy yes you know Italy is the home of of the, that sort of centre back, and you know the other strikers that are, yeah okay, you, Lewis Muriel is very quick and runs in behind, but is strong and is aggressive. Lukaku, Ronaldo, these are these are the the only three strikers in Serie A who scored more than Vlaovic, uh, mm-hmm. and they're all quite a lot older. And you know having somebody who is that young who's playing for a team that is often characterized as soft centered you know Fiorentina yeah. are they're pretty and and they they do the odd nice thing, but they're not you know they're not a tough side if Vlavic were playing for an inter, for example, you'd kind of celebrate that slightly he's not a shithauser, but that that abrasive edge at Fiorentina it stands out even more because they're not really like that. What's sort of um, taken my interest is that I haven't watched every Fiorentina game this season just because, well, I just haven't. You have other um, things to do. <laughs> I have other things to do. Like, I'm, I'm a moving country. Like, I, you know, I'm building a house. But uh, I watched them in midweek, and I think they were playing against, uh, I think it was Cagliari. It ended in a goalless draw, and it was just awful. Just dreadful experience watching an hour and a half of that. But he occupies defenders in quite an interesting way because like you know in, in, in that situation Fiorentina seemingly were absolutely fine with a goalless draw they, they made no attempt whatsoever to try and win the game so fine but he was still a presence in the game even when the ball wasn't around him he's just a nuisance because what we don't want is you don't want a forward who has all these wonderful goal scoring attributes and all these technical abilities that you've referenced but who isn't relevant at all when the ball isn't near him you know if he's not occupying defenders then that's kind of a strike against his usefulness. I mean, we're, we're going to get on to kind of the, the sort of the sensible transfers light aspect of this because Fiorentina, obviously, no European football, uh, no fans like everybody else. You'd imagine that there's a deal to be done for Vlaovic because he scored a lot of goals. You're going to get people to say, right, well, you should go and play for Chelsea or you should go and play for Liverpool or, you know, you know go go to Juventus. And I just wonder because there's, there's, a, slight, there's a slight clumsiness to him that mm. if he didn't get off to a really good start, like uh, if he if he kind of Timo Werner'd himself somewhere, um, then you wonder whether like the kind of reaction you get to big money signings at big clubs might be a little bit too much because he's still 21, 21, 22. I think he's 21. He's still young. Also, he's been prolific this season, but this is really his first prolific season in Europe. He's yes. shown promise last season. He scored some goals. But this is the first kind of, right, you belong at this level kind of year that he's had. And so you think, is this permanent? I think I want him going 
Um, the other the other club he's connected with is AC Milan, and that makes a lot of sense given Ibrahimovic's age and you know their their needs at the top of the pitch. But I wonder whether he's better suited at a kind of, and this is you know not taking finances into into the equation, um, at a kind of an RB Leipzig, for instance, or uh, interesting a Napoli maybe, or that that kind of club. So if I if I were him. Yeah, or his agent, probably more crucially, I would be looking at playing wherever Adi Hooter is coaching, which is currently on track Frankfurt. Interesting, so Gladbach. Yeah. Um, okay. Because Hooter is uh, has he gone to Gladbach? Yeah, I can't. I genuinely um, cannot keep up with the Bundesliga. No one can because something strange it's happens mental. every week in Germany. Yeah, but um, okay. yeah, he will. He will be coaching Gladbach next season. Yeah. Perfect. In which case, go to Gladbach. Because Huta just seems to have a, a Midas touch with strikers of his type. Uh, mm-hmm. Andre Silva, who weirdly, I think, is either on loan from AC Milan or was on loan from AC Milan and was then bought outright, has had a stellar on... season. Jovic is on loan with no buyback, I think. And Andre Silva is, I could be wrong, but I think he's a full-time Eintracht player now. Or will be soon, right. or something like that. Yeah, something like that. But they, you know, not dissimilar types of players. Um, strong in the air, good at bringing other players in, occupied defenders, slightly mm. clunky at times, but also very, very capable in the box of scoring goals. And and Andre Silva is not the first striker that that Hooter has managed to turn into that. Jovic as well had an extraordinary season at Frankfurt. I think you're spot on. If he were to go to uh, somewhere as the replacement for X, um, be it Ibrahimovic, be it Ronaldo, if you know if tough Juventus gig. don't qualify for the Champions tough, League, tough incredibly tough. And the the thing is, because he scored twenty one goals in Serie A, you know, fans will have an expectation of him moving to if he moves to a club in that same division, they'll be like, oh well, he scored twenty one goals for a team that's not as good as ours. Therefore, it's going to be even easier for him. He's going to score more. Yeah, but exactly. there's something about... And, and don't get me wrong. Like, yeah, I, There's nothing about him that would indicate a lack of character. But as you say, this is the first... He scored six goals last season. He didn't score at all in his first Fiorentina season. Like He's on an upwards trajectory, but he would be far, far better advised to do a Yuri Tielemans than to do uh, somebody that went somewhere too quickly. Have a couple of years in the Europa League rather than jumping straight to the Champions League. I think I um, I, I was thinking and about work this with morning. a coach that wants to make you the focal point of an attack yeah. rather than go where you're important. Also go where someone, yeah. if you start badly, somebody can't just change you up for another 50 million pound player. So right, I exactly think this. I like Leipzig. Um, I really like that Gladbach shout actually because I, I think playing with someone like Marcus Thuram would be very interesting. I really like West Ham if they had the money. It doesn't look really like I think West Ham are probably going to have to make do with a Europa Conference League spot, whatever the hell that means. I don't know. I still don't really understand that, but um, what what that entails. Um, but I think uh, if you put him in that side, uh, made him the focal point, he could be the player that West Ham thought Sebastian Heller was incorrectly thought obviously because he was yeah lightweight. I, I, I mean he's done quite but well this is a actually, weird but... thing West Ham is where like so West Ham also had Alba Negetti who's who's now up at Celtic, Celtic? Yeah. and had a really strong like goal every other game for Basel um, yeah. and again was a sensible transfers pick as a sort of bustling quite edgy striker and then went to West Ham and just did nothing like absolutely flopped for a season, barely got any time on the pitch. When he did, he looked lost, confused. Alain, big money, nothing happened. You know, I I wonder if there's something about the way that West Ham play, the 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 way that Antonio is such an unorthodox centre. I think you could incorporate that. It's uh, very Rathen, hard. Though, I I quite like the idea that it's it's a little bit of contradiction because I love the way Antonio plays. I think he's brilliant. Um, at the same time, I'm a little bit uneasy about putting my entire season's hopes on his shoulders just because he is a little bit brittle. Um, oh, totally. Yeah, but it, he'll, but he'll never this... play 38 games in a Premier League season. Just He just won't. 
Um, Adapting I, to a striker like that does does require a team to play a certain sort of way. And, you know, West Ham generate a lot of their goals from elsewhere. And I know Antonio scores a lot, but, with, you know, people like Sushek bursting forwards and the threat mm-hmm. from set pieces. It just It just feels like if I was a striker, if I were a striker... I would be very wary of going to West Ham currently because I just feel like it's a place where potentially good players end up struggling for reasons that I can't quite understand. I like to think that that one of the reasons why that happened in the past has kind of been solved, which is that the ownership seemingly took far too much, were, were far too active in transfer policy. Like they were a classic example of people that wanted to do deals and kind of thought they knew the game in the way that that I know the game instead of kind of trusting people that had a process or or allowed for instance a head coach to build a team around the players that he wanted I don't know if that's fair that's just always the way it seemed like there's always been a kind of we'll have that player and you know give me one of those and I'll 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 take a Gokantori and a Faguli and you know like (laughs) it's it was very scattergun there was that there was that kind of Lacazette summer where you know, they were absolutely determined to spend £40 million on Alexander Lacazette and he had no interest whatsoever in playing for West Ham. But, you know, it kept on going. And then when they didn't get him, they were just going to spend that money somewhere. And it it's like that era has gone. And I, I think you mentioned the Suchak. I think West Ham have become really smart um, because certain people within that organisation seem to now understand where their limitations are. And I think that's mm. hugely important. And they're going to fall short this season, obviously. And they've had a disappointing few weeks, which will cost them. But I still think it's been a, an excellent year. And Vlarovic would be kind of fun that. Another place, and I, I caveat this with um, Jose Mourinho is about to uh, ride into town. But Roma is quite interesting for him. Mm. Not too big. Dzeko's coming towards the end. Yeah. Um, nice group of players behind him. Good midfielders, creative midfielders. I do, do I do that. worry with Roma, though. I worry that the stylistic shift is just going to be too extreme. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I think, oh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a good shout in terms of replacing Dzeko, Dzeko. With, with, Dzeko with, you know, with the caveats that we've said about replacing players, but I think there's a significant difference <laughs> between replacing him and replacing, uh, you know, someone like... Ronaldo uh, or Lukaku, um, but I do I do think Roma could be a proper bin fire next season. Oh, I fear for Roma a little bit. Like I I, I have a little bit of sympathy for their fans because I kind of know what's coming. But it's it's interesting. It's like I'm very suspicious of just like how quickly they hired Mourinho because ordinarily, like given a CV over the last sort of you know, half a decade, you think I want to sit down and talk to this guy a lot. I will also want to give him time to reflect. I know that made no difference at all to what happened after you left Manchester United, but you think, right, sort of evaluate what's happened. But no, it was, what, 16 days later? So you kind of mm. thought, no, I'm good with what he showed at Tottenham. And yeah. I don't know, I just wonder where he, they're he like... Seems, he doesn't seem like a man geared towards quiet reflection of his own shortcomings. But I, I you know, I I kind of want to see a Mourinho reinvention. I want, he, he is a very smart guy and he has got a very sharp footballing mind. I would love to see an act three. Like I, I want to know what that looks like, where he kind of, he kind of takes revenge on the football world and proves that he's, you know, he is able to reinvent himself and he's able to silence all the people that doubt him because that would make for a very interesting storyline and it would be something worth watching. I just fear that, I think this is his last chance at this level of the game. Um, just because of, unless he significantly mm. drops what you know he earns, um, and he kind of, uh, yeah, I just, I just can't see anybody going for this kind of thing again if it, if it, if it goes wrong. And so I, I, I think, yeah, I, I don't know what to expect. I fear the worst, but I fear that maybe I'm not, I haven't, I haven't cooled off enough yet. So maybe I'm a little bit biased towards the situation. So we'll give it a summer and we'll revisit it. Let's end with. Because we can't really do a podcast without, without mentioning this, but we're going to do it with a little bit of a spin. Uh, Alisson's goal on Sunday, fun. That was cool. That was a proper goalkeeper's goal. Like there, there are certain ones where. Uh, let, let's do it the other way around. Actually, your favourite goal scored by a goalkeeper. Um. Well, it's not Asmir Begovic's one against us. That's for sure. 
sure. um, which still haunts me. I think, I think Allison's goal's got to be up there. I, I'm trying to remember the name of the fellow that scored for Carlisle. Was it Carlisle? Jimmy Glass. Yeah, I mean that that's Jimmy a classic, Glass. isn't it? That is a classic. Um, yeah. I think you rule out. I mean. Uh, like Shilavar, for example, scored some really, really great free kicks. But I think if mm-hmm. you you rule out goalkeepers who score from set pieces or penalties, even the great Hans Jörg Butt of Leverkusen fame. Um, also, can I can I just put an asterisk against Jorge Campos as well because that's not the same. Like goalkeeper that's not who occasionally plays because he was outfield. Yeah, yeah, not exactly. I mean, Very remarkable nice. that he was able yeah. to do Amazing. that. Amazing, brilliant, brilliant. Um, wonderfully talented guy, but it's not the same. Yes, um, I was. I looked it up. I also found two funny things. So Vincent Enyema, who was um, uh, Lille's, uh, yeah, and Lille's goalkeeper for ages yeah. and ages, and was one of the consistently great kind of league on goalkeepers, was the main penalty taker when he was at Hapoel Tel Aviv. <laughs> was scored scored that. 20 penalties for them yeah yeah the other thing i found was a an english goalkeeper who played between 1907 and 1925 nice who has just one of the all-time great names he scored his name was arnold oak scattergood this podcast has now gone to the place it absolutely should have gone to without joe just you know, this is this yeah. kind of the expression. He won one cap for England in 1913, <laughs> and he was only five for eight, apparently. Which... No, actually, well, back then that would have been, I think that would have placed him as above average height, or at least average yeah. height. Yeah, that's it's quite interesting. That's probably true. In a yeah. super sort of nerdy way, but if you look up what the average heights were at certain periods yeah. in history, we have all grown quite a lot over the This decade. is true. It's interesting you brought up Shilavar because. Um, and Asmir Begovic, I don't like the big goal kick that floats in or, or takes a massive bounce or goes in because nah. there's a gust of wind. Don't like that. That's a count. that's too stupid to be interesting. Um, fun, but not as you know. They always appear on those lists. And I just think mm, no. Shilavar, like uh, the one Shilavar goal that's really weird is the one that he scores from sixty yards, where he just runs. It, it only exists on VHS quality video now, but um, you can find it. It's it's a free kick given somewhere around the centre circle and he's not even in the shot and the ball's just sat there, you know, players doing nothing. And he runs in, sprints in from out of shot and just strikes it first time and mm. it, it goes straight in. It's amazing. It is absolutely amazing. And he was a legitimately good free kick taker. Um, and he was also a legitimately good goalkeeper. Yeah, he was a brilliant goalkeeper. He was uh, very talismanic. Um, yeah. Gave a, an excellent performance in France 98 against France when they, France won a golden goal with Laurent Blanc golden goal, but he was he was brilliant in that game. Um, I've just um I've just been reading the list of goal scoring goalkeepers on Wikipedia and, and this is something I want to see a clip of. A guy called Fabian Buntic, who was playing for Ingolstadt, scored a volley from a corner in second half stoppage time to equalise in a German third tier match. They would go on to score the winner a minute later. That's tantalising, isn't it? It doesn't say who against, but I, I, I want to know more about that. I the, the best one I think I've seen, and I'm also going to disqualify it just because it's, it's too good, is a, I think it comes from a South African game where corner is cleared, ball bounces, edge of the penalty box, and the goalkeeper bicycle kicks it into the top corner. No. And yeah, I'll send it to you after the pod. I'm, I'm sure people listening will know the one I'm, I'm, I'm referring to. But it's like, it's... For when when my goalkeeper scores, I want it to have a slight scruffiness. I want it to be a little bit shit in a way which is faithful to, you know, the limitations of the position. Like, I don't want my goalkeeper rifling shots in from 25 yards off the other side and, of the bar. And I have I to want... say, Alisson's yeah. header was legitimately good. If a centre-forward had scored that header, they would be pleased. Yeah, and, and so this, this takes me back to where I want to go, like because it's a good header, it's a solid good connection it you know if a center half scored that center forward you, rightly so that they, they like you said they, they'd be pleased i think i go back to um peter schmeichel's header against rotar volograd in the 90s because it's an <laughs> abysmal header um and there's also if you search um it it, it 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 was an equalizer but united still ended up getting eliminated i think am i remembering there's a great photo of it where schmeichel is heading the ball and it's i think he heads it from around the penalty spot and it's quite a weak header, but 
the, the photograph captures him with the ball on his forehead and a rotar center half looking at him with this really startled expression on his face it's a brilliant mm. photo i'll try and i'll tell you what when we when we post this tomorrow i'll try and dig it out um but it's also it should never go in because it's a weak header like it's something that it, it, it looks like i've headed the ball it's crap <laughs> and it's, it's so there's this a really fine line i feel like this is somewhere like where we're kind of treading on the football cliches podcast lawn at the moment here but um yeah the kind of rules around this stuff wasn't there Yes. Right. Um, and there are also rules around time, so we should probably finish. I'm going to talk, actually, I'm just going to monologue very quickly about the um, about the final day in Turkey um, because Besiktas got over the line. And I've really enjoyed Turkish football over the last couple of weeks. I've been watching my father-in-law, so I've got quite into it because it matters an awful lot to him. And it's fun because you run into all these players that you'd forgotten about. Like there's a there's a Ryan Babel here and a, a George Kevin and Kodo over there. And, you know, ooh, there's Fabio Barini. And Gedson Fernandez is in midfield and he's playing quite well. And, and oh, there's DeAndre Yedlin. So it's kind of like, um, I don't know how to describe it, but the quality has been good and it's been tense. And it's pretty rare that you go into a final day of a season with three clubs able to win the title and all three of those clubs being from the same city. My father-in-law has been hoarse for the last 36 hours because Galatasaray didn't quite get there. But um, it was good fun all the same. Okay, so that will do it. Joe will not be back on Friday. He is he's having a holiday. Have you seen where he's he's gone on holiday, Alex? Looks um, very cool. No, I haven't. No, Have it's I? very, very nice. He's 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 booked himself uh he and his, his partner have gone off and they they've booked themselves like a, a sort of a country retreat. It's got a sort of oh, like a, a dock moat type thing. It's um you know, looks very, very nice. So Sounds just great. Uh, Yeah, yeah, I'm imagining him kind of listening to us checking in on us but he's he's sitting on the dock with his with his feet in the river you know happy um <laughs> and hope he'll, he'll come he, he won't he won't be checking in on us no he won't he won't he'll he just won't. be no, yeah no, no probably not anyway that will do it for today thank you alex thank you very much and thank you to everyone for listening we'll be back on friday The Athletic.